Podcast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. Well, folks, David Bietney is taking a well-deserved hiatus from the show. We have with us this week Frank Warren as our special guest host. So have you been readying yourself for this great event, Frank? Uh, well, I'm doing my, the best that I possibly can, Gene. I'm a little behind the game here, but uh, I'll have to say, having been a guest in the past and also being a longtime fan of the show, I'm uh, certainly flattered and honored uh, in keeping David's seat warm. And uh, I'd certainly appreciate the opportunity. I, I just hope he doesn't throw rocks at me uh, at the end of this. Well, actually, what we're going to do is have our listeners send rocks to you. <laughs> okay, so this is the problem. Ladies and gentlemen, if you want to send rocks to Frank Warren, I will give you his... No, I won't do a thing like that. But really, what dragged you into this crazy field in the first place? Y ufology in general? Indeed. I'll have you to must have been a normal person at one time. Well, it's, that's debatable. Uh, my, my wife certainly doesn't think so. But uh, I, I, my mother gets the blame for that. She was uh, an out-of-the-box thinker, uh, I'll have to say. Uh, she recently passed away peacefully, by the way, uh, uh, last month, in fact. But she passed that on to me, this curiosity. Uh, she asked questions. She, uh, she, you know, she wasn't a conventional thinker. She she was puzzled by a lot of things, and, uh, and she looked into a lot of different things, and, and that rubbed off on me uh, early on. And by chance, I had uh, come across, uh, you know, for example, Kehoe's books, and and uh, and as well as Repelts. Uh, that kind of set the bug, so to speak, and it just it made me ask more questions. And one of the things that stuck with me early on is if there was nothing to the uh, the UFO conundrum, so to speak, why did the Air Force look into it for so long as they did? I couldn't get past that. And uh, that just begot more questions. And, it, you know, you start to dig, and uh, and that began my trek. And that, that was pretty much in the early 70s. And, and although, you know, different things go on in one's life and, and whatnot, I, I never was too far away from ufology. And in, uh, in the last 10 to 15 years, I've been able to spend more time doing research and whatnot. So I'm, I'm smitten with it, as many of us are. You're suffering from the UFO researcher disease. Yes, yes, I am. I, I'm, I'm afflicted. Okay, in as much as you're afflicted, what are the key cases that you've investigated over the years? And I think maybe we could go to that, and that frames the direction in which we take when we bring on our main guest. Well, ironically, uh, and, and of course we'll get into this in a minute, which precipitated this upcoming interview, but one of them one is, was one of the earliest, uh, was with uh, Mari Island. You know, most mainstream ufologists, let's say, if, if that's not an oxymoron in itself, pretty much condemn uh, the Mari Island incident. And, and I, I didn't do that. I, I dug into that case, and uh, I think I raised the bar a little bit on it along the way. Uh, for example, I was able to interview one of the last survivors of the ill-fated B-25 of uh, Captain Davidson and Lieutenant Brown. And in talking with him, 
Let's explain. The Brown and Davidson, that's the incident that goes back to Maury Island, right? Brown and Davidson were quite literally uh, the first two known uh, UFO military investigators. They were CIC agents. Uh, But we know them uh, for a fact that, uh, you know, they were uh, investigating then flying saucer incidents. And I, I say known, obviously, there was investigations in regards to Foo Fighters. But let's say that these were the first known investigators. And quite frankly, they died in pursuit of that information. I mean, they died in a tragic accident uh, doing that job, ironically. You, we could attribute the, uh, the the first two deaths to uh, in relationship to UFOs uh, to them. But and you can't say, though, that the deaths were caused by UFO. No, no. Uh, it was it was strictly an accident, it, it, just in the sense that they were the, doing their duty. They were tasked to investigate UFOs, and they died in a in a horrific accident. Sadly, uh, in fact, they were on their way back uh, from Washington. They were trying to get their plane back to uh, for Air Force Day, which was the birth of the Air Force, and that that particular Mitchell B twenty five had recently had work done on it, and it had uh, it had so many hours of what was then called slow time. They had put a new engine in it and whatnot, and uh, there was oil leaking at the uh, on the stacks, which was common to that uh, B-25. In fact, I have the order from the Air Force that, uh, in fact, had all the stacks. There was an order to have all the stacks welded because it was such a common problem. And, okay, so uh, basically this was an accident waiting to happen. It, yes, it certainly was. And uh, uh, they were at 10,000 feet. The uh, left wing caught on fire. Uh, subsequently, they crashed. Uh, there were two survivors. Both uh, Brown and Davidson uh, went to the ground, met their death. They actually found Davidson's body still at the controls, feet on the pedals. Brown, in fact, did get out of the craft right before it crashed. His parachute was partially deployed. Um, I get the feeling and this is speculation on my part, I, you almost think that Brown perhaps, uh, one of the witnesses um, that did survive said that they saw Brown at the door uh, as he was, as his, as his parachute uh, opened. He, he looked back and he could see Brown there. And either Brown was uh, uh, thrown back in by the centrifugal force of the plane going into a spiral, uh, or, in fact, perhaps he tried to go and help his friend Davidson. Uh, I'd like to think that he probably went back and, and tried to help his buddy. Uh, now, before we get too much into this, because Maury Island is a can of worms in and of itself, obviously there have been attempts to make this tragic crash into something sinister. From what you tell me, it isn't. No, not at all. It was it was an accident. If you go back to the first episode of UFO Hunters, uh, they tried to spin that uh, in in the sense that it had something to do with uh, you know flying saucer and or UFO, uh, perhaps you know, taking the airplane down and and quite frankly that's utter nonsense it was just a tragic accident although now having said that i have been in contact with the davidson family and uh davidson's uh mother believed that uh, in fact the davidson family the 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 gal that actually sought me out uh said that uh because of her mother and and just her questions that perhaps or the mother thought that the U, she quote the UFO people had something to do with her son's death and i i immediately explained to her that no that 
you know, other than the fact that that's, they were doing their duty and doing an investigation, it was nothing but a, a, a tragic accident. Uh, but I found that was very interesting because uh, what that leads me to believe is that the Air Force uh, was not up front. Uh, you know, they were quiet about uh, how he died. And, of course, there was a big investigation. Uh, unlike uh, Roswell and whatnot, the Mari Island incident stayed in the newspapers for weeks because of the crash uh, and the follow-up investigation. Um, and there was a and there was a semi-quasi cover-up uh, because it was alleged that there was saucer deb- uh, debris and or what was then called disc bits on the craft. Right, right. No, I understand how one could have gotten that impression. We'll have to leave that to more of the mysteries of the past. That takes us kind of to what we're going to discuss today, which is, first of all, whether we should even be bothering with these very, very old cases, because if we haven't gotten any real solid information up to now, aren't there a lot more recent cases we should be looking at? Well, the the short answer to that, Gene, is sure, there are recent cases, but the argument and my argument to that is as long as uh, information is forthcoming to any of the old cases uh, then why not continue to look at them and and the irony uh, is that we still get new witnesses uh, we get new witnesses we're working on a couple new witnesses right now uh, or unknown witnesses I should say for Roswell uh, recently a, a couple of new uh, witnesses came up for Aztec um, as long as that continues to happen i see no reason why to to shut the door on any of them you know if new information comes you have to pursue it problem is i think that some people use roswell more so than aztec as a linchpin of ufo reality they debunk roswell they can't be any ufos that's unfortunate that, well, this is true. This happens all the time. And the another bit of irony is that we have uncovered uh, some common uh, denominator uh, information uh, between Roswell and Aztec. And as we'll uh, discuss later, uh, it actually makes sense in terms of the retrieval of said crafts. Tell you what, we've got Scott Ramsey joining us with our special guest host, Frank Warren, to talk about what may have happened in Aztec, New Mexico in the 1940s, coming up next on the Paracast. And now, something completely different. Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus, because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at Radio radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. 
Scott Ramsey, now we had you on quite a long time ago on the PowerCast, and I think we should recover lost ground before we cover new ground. How did you get attracted to the Aztec UFO case? Well, I heard about it back in October of 97, 98, don't have my notes in front of me, on a business trip out to Farmington, New Mexico. And uh, we were basically testing a generator one night, and some of the locals, which are Navajo, were talking about where they were going to go spot for hunting mule deer. And one mentioned out by the old crash site, uh, which is Hart Canyon Road. And uh, my ears kind of perked up. I didn't know these guys that well back then. Of course, you know, 20-some years later, I know them very well. They're good friends. And I asked them what old crash site, and they said, oh, old story from back in the late 40s, early 50s, that a UFO crashed out on Hart Canyon Road. So that was really my introduction to it. Okay, Hard Canyon Road specifically, Hard. what are we looking at here on our geography, our Google Maps? Uh, take the town of Aztec and you'll see Highway 550 going northeast and then it cuts straight, uh, straight north toward the Colorado border. A Aztec is only 20 miles from the Colorado border, give or take. And going up Highway 550 today, several miles out, there's a road that cuts off to the right. That's Hart Canyon Road. Okay, now how far is this from Roswell? Oh, about eight hours, eight and a half hours. Okay, now one of the things you wonder about here is because of the fact that a lot of the memories and a lot of the information about this and the Roswell case came to light, what, 20 years after the incidents allegedly occurred, 30 years how do you know that one didn't influence the other and we don't have cross-pollination? Well, because Aztec actually came out almost immediately, as Roswell really did, if you look at the front page of the, the, the newspapers that circulated before they retracted the story on Roswell. And Aztec, Frank Scully heard about it in '49, wrote the book in 1950. So there wasn't really a 20-year delay before Aztec was mentioned and the possibility of uh, like you say, cross-pollination or confusion with Roswell. But the Frank Scully book, to be perfectly blunt about it, it's a pretty controversial thing. And, you know, I've read articles he wrote subsequent to that. He seems like a pretty straight-ahead guy. But if you look at the original stuff, if you look mm -hmm. at the original claims around that time, especially True Magazine, this guy was consorting with hoaxers and crooks, and the whole thing was made up because he was a variety gossip columnist. Now, of course, nowadays, if you're a gossip columnist, it means you're a mainstream journalist. <laughs> but in those days, it was a very different thing. That's right. That's right. Well, now uh, you're mixing in the into the pot the, the con artist and hoaxers of Silas Newton and uh, Leo Gepauer. Yes, let's take a look at that because I think that is where we run into a problem. First of all, who were these people? How were they identified in the book? Um... Well, actually, the chapter on Silas Newton is written by a world expert on the subject. <laughs> I, I think he was referring to uh, Frank Warren here. Uh, Frank Warren has actually written, written a chapter on Silas Newton. <laughs> well, but I, you were referring to Scully's book, weren't you, Gene? I was, but since Frank is the expert, tell us how this relates to the Scully I, book. I wasn't throwing it back at you, Frank. I was just It's okay. People throw things you. at us all the time because that's what the Paracast is all about, right, to have right. people throw things at us. Well, I, I think it's important to note that 
uh, well, let me do one thing I wanted to interject before we got too far ahead. There is cross-pollination between Roswell and Aztec as time has gone on. There's information that's surfaced with Aztec as well as Roswell, uh, and, I, and there is cross-pollination. I, I mean, let's face it, they're only months apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eight and, months, yeah. And, and research, uh, Scott's research, uh, has uh, uncovered uh, uh, some common denominator uh, people in regards to the retrieval uh, of the craft. So there is certainly cross-pollination, and it, ju- and it grows as time has gone on. But in terms of uh, uh, Newton and Gebauer, or, or what, uh, what everybody refers to as the con men, the, as, again, as time has gone on, the, the story of Aztec really lives and dies uh, by Newton and Gebauer. My argument has always been you could eliminate uh, those two people from the picture altogether and the information uh, that Scott has culled and uncovered in his over 20-year trek into this thing is it's, it's a boatload of evidence uh, in support of, uh, of the incident at, at Aztec. Uh, in terms of Scully uh, with his relationship to Newton, he knew Newton for years uh, before the Aztec incident took place. They uh, he had written in one of his columns, oh, about the, the famed author, uh, Scott, help me here, whose name escapes me. And Newton actually wrote him a letter and said, you know, you've, you've, uh, you've danced around this guy for months now. Why don't you just write about him? And as it turns out, that particular individual, uh, the, the Newtons back then, hosted him from England, and they stayed at his, his residence uh, in New York. But that's how Scully and Newton first met, and then they became friends. Uh, and then Newton later shared the information with him uh, in terms of what he knew about Aztec. The label of... Uh, uh, of con man in regards to Silas Newton, if you read the FBI files, which are substantial uh, from cover to cover, uh, you can spin that any which way you want to. You can you can look at an upstanding wealthy oilman, uh, true blue Republican, uh, etc. Or you can cull certain information out of it and, and label him a con man, uh, a thief, et cetera, et cetera. The irony is if you look into his background meticulously, he just doesn't fit uh, the picture of the lowly con man. For example, Scully wrote in his book that he was a graduate of Baylor University and Yale and did postgraduate work at the University of Berlin. That's a fact. Uh, we've we have researched that and verified that um, he was a golf champion for decades. In fact, you'll find more information about uh, Silas Newton in the sports section of old periodicals than you will anywhere else. I have dozens of uh, across the country of articles uh, uh, about uh, his golf expertise. He married Nan O'Reilly, who was one of the first female sports writers in the country. They were married for about 10 years before she uh, sat, she died uh, prematurely. When In 1929, as president of the Indiana Oil and Gas Company, he purchased, his company purchased the Grayberg Oil Company, uh, which in today's dollars, that merger would have been worth a quarter of a billion dollars. Now, you take all these things together. One thing that happens, uh, as ufologists do in general, we learn to be profilers. We get pretty good at it. And I'm here to tell you that the profile of Silas Newton, when you get all the information out there, does not fit uh, that of a lowly con man. Or so a why did they call him a con man? 
Scott, you want to take that one? Well, yeah, I, I think it was the way it was set up. When his name comes up and any reference to the Aztec case, right off the bat, it was, oh, they were convicted of fraud. When it was never a criminal case at all. As a matter of fact, I forget how many days later. It was several days later. We'll call it several days later. The Washington or the Denver Post uh, retracted that uh, conviction. Uh, there was a big headline. I mean, everybody likes to show it. Oh, look, they were convicted of uh, fraud. Uh, you can't be convicted in a civil court. The whole trial was in a civil court. And, well, and a key point that the, the U.S. grand jury refused to indict uh, Newton in Gabar. So, in other words, on the federal level, level they, they, they felt that there wasn't enough evidence to indict uh, both men. Yeah, and, and Jane, at the end of the day, uh, what what the big uh, and and I, I go into this in great detail, Suzanne and I do, in the book, and then we we lead off into the chapter that Frank is written or is writing. The only charge they had Newton on was cha- uh, taking Herman Flater's check from Colorado and depositing it in one of his oil accounts in California. So they tried to get him for basically interstate transportation of a check. What most people don't realize, Flater had already scammed Silas Newton and Leo Gitbauer on his life and health machine and had taken them for about the same dollar amount that Newton and Gitbauer had sold him interest in this oil well and interest in the technology of his doodlebug. So we, we kind of have the pot calling the kettle black in the, in the Flater-Newton uh, case. Uh, to further Frank's point, they, they went to four federal judges, and no federal judge would hear this case for fraud. It ended up going back into Flater's hometown where a local magistrate heard the civil case. So I, I think once you comb through what's been said for 62 years and you really boil down the facts, it was highly blown out of proportion. And so why they do that? Just to discredit the case? I, I think they did. I, and I think we addressed that very well in the book. Okay, I you keep referring to another, the book. When's that going to be out, by the way? We, we haven't put ourselves... We, we have enough stress here right now, like everybody does. We haven't taken a dart and stuck it on a calendar and said this is the date. The, the book is about three-quarters written. We work on it every night. Think, I, uh, I thought he was going to say when the Scully chapter's done. I mean, no, I wouldn't throw you in like that. I wouldn't throw you in like that. <laughs> okay, so why did they jump all over Scully? Is that because, once again, he was the gossip columnist? No, I, I think it was because of the magnitude of the case. I really do. I And keep in mind, I know we were swapping some emails a few weeks back. When I started out on this, I didn't give a, a hoot either way, whether it was an old wives' tale or if it was a, a real event. As a matter of fact, I, up until a few years into it, I, I was, or yeah, a few years into it, I was very skeptical about the whole case. I, I think it was the magnitude of who Silas Newton was, who had built the mad technology that they were using in their doodlebug. Uh, the magnitude of the crash, eight months after Roswell, the biggest one that got basically screwed up with it being leaked to the press. Uh, the fact that they had a recovery of a UFO pretty much down pat until the infamous Dr. G broke the story to Silas Newton, who subsequently broke the story to Scully. 
Well, and if we go along with uh, uh, Kehoe's thinking in terms of the silence group during it, to feel the flavor of the times, they were it, not uh, presuming that the powers that be did not know what they were dealing with. They were trying to keep a lid on this thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, and and again, it's like you say they they had they had uh, case in point to go by was Roswell that got flubbed. So here we have eight months later we have the Aztec event, and they want to bury this thing or bury anything uh, UFO and or flying saucer related at the time. And let's let's don't forget that the OSI was investigating the Aztec case heavily, uh, yeah. as well as CIA, FBI. Yes. Yeah, I mean yeah, we have documents to prove that, Gene. Okay, let's look at the alleged expose of the case in True Magazine. What was that all about? What did they complain about? What did they find allegedly wrong about it? With J.P. Kahn? Yes. Okay. I just finished that chapter last night. It's amazing. Your timing couldn't be better. I, I guess we'll have to go all the way back to the beginning. In 1949, J.P. Kahn heard about Frank Scully was on to a story. J.P. Kahn contacted Frank Scully, and J.P. at the time had a desk at the San Francisco Chronicle, uh, still had a phone, was not working full-time on their payroll. He was doing freelance work. But due to a very good relationship with Scott Newhall, who was the editor, he had some liberties, and one was to want to track down this story and buy it for the San Francisco Chronicle. J.P. Kahn, who's always been made out to be a skeptic, actually had a huge interest in UFOs. Uh, was actually a pilot for a brief time at the end of World War II in the Army Air Corps. There's three sides to that story. Frank Scully's was, uh, by the time they made me an offer, I had already cut the deal with Holt and Company. And had I not had my deal with Holt and Company, I still wouldn't have sold this no way I would have sold the story. JP's version is he came back after his meeting with Scully and told Scott Newhall, it's ours. It's a done deal. I got it for 25000 bucks. Keep that in mind. This is 1949. That was an enormous amount of money. So we're talking about a deal that would be worth, what, $150,000 today? Frank, do your calculation. Oh, I'm uh, not going to do it. Frank, you know about math. You're the mathematician <laughs> amongst this crowd. Tell us. What is twenty five thousand dollars in two thousand ten? What's be like twelve million or something? It, I would have to find my that website that told me that the other day. That the, the yeah, other part of my yeah, extension still, to it, my brain. But, well, even if you look at yeah twenty five thousand in nineteen forty nine nineteen fifty dollars, it was an enormous amount. Well, what? Well, here I'll tell you the uh, uh, Newton bought Grayberg, I believe. What did we say? Twenty million. Yeah. So is that, is that, well, that that twenty million in twenty nine uh, is a quarter of a billion today. So now now do the math. Yeah. Boy, the Fed sure prints that money really good. Okay, they let's do. get back to the point here about this. So basically, they didn't get the deal for Scully's book. That's correct. And this is basically sour grapes. Uh, actually, I flew out uh, in 2009 and interviewed uh, some people, one uh, Robert McClay, who was with J.P. Kahn until the day he died. He handled his estate. And Robert did not work at the Chronicle when all this was going on. He was an artist. He worked there years later, in the uh, that, 50s, however. 
that was the last time I think that you were on the Paracast because uh, we did that interview right here from my office. Oh, that's true. You know what? Before we even go on. Picture this. You're on the phone with a client or colleague trying to explain something visual, a PowerPoint, a keynote presentation, a website. But it's frustrating because they can't see what you're talking about. The solution? Good news. They can if you invite them to an online meeting using GoToMeeting. Then they can see your computer desktop on their computer screen so you can show them what you're talking about. I use GoToMeeting all the time to collaborate with colleagues and with clients. You can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days, but you must visit GoToMeeting slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for free 30-day trial. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're in the PowerCast. Special guest host Frank Warren. We're featuring Scott Ramsey, who is coming out with a book in the near future, or not so near future, about the Aztec UFO case. We're right now trying to start from the beginning, focusing on Frank's Scully book and its aftermath. Continue, please, Scott. Okay. I think Khan felt that he was jilted a little bit in the fact that he did not get the uh, the story from Scully. And so he started it. And this was, by the way, very, very common to his character in talking to people that worked with him. Uh, it was either his way or the highway. And Scott Newhall, I think, looked at it as, well, you win some, you lose some, and, you know, we'll get the next story. And and whatever happened with Khan and, and Scully behind closed doors, we'll never know. The Khan thought he had the deal. Uh, he got very upset and decided to turn the whole story around on Scully. As a matter of fact, the first letters to the FBI are from J.P. Kahn to J. Edgar Hoover, not the local FBI office, right to Hoover himself. I think, it, having said that, I, I believe it's safe to say that had it not been for Kahn uh, interjecting himself into that scenario, I don't believe there would have been a trial of any sort no. uh, for Newton and Gebauer. I, no, I think absolutely was, not. He, he stirred the whole thing up. Yes. Okay, the long and short of it is he writes this article for True Magazine. There was a lawsuit after that. Yes. And, and I, I've never been able to find out if that was settled out of court, how it was settled. Uh, yeah, it seems like people only keep records on Aztec if it's, it's negative. If there's anything positive pertaining to, to Scully or any of the outcomes. But I've even been in touch with the Scully family, and nobody seems to know the answer to that question. So they didn't suddenly see $10 million appear in a bank vault. Yeah, right. So you're you're referring to the libel suit that Scully and Newton uh, pursued against uh, against Drew. Is that is that what you're talking about, Gene? Right. Oh. That's how I took it. Sure. 
Yeah. Okay. So right. we don't know how that turned out, except the and lawsuit I do was know the Denver Post suit was settled out of court. The which one? Uh, where Scully uh, jumped in with Newton about the the uh, con con men convicted of fraud that appeared on the Denver Post. There was a settlement out of the court as well as a, a, a retracted story a few days later, a week later, something like that. Of course, when we look at the thing 50, 60 years later, we think that the case was disproved and that the Frank Scully book may have been just a hoax or maybe he was just misled. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's been the common thinking. Uh, that's That's been the snowball effect. Uh, f- from early on, uh, it's this, that story has been regurgitated. You know, the whole thing really, again, it, uh, it, it, everybody hangs their hat on Newton and Gebauer, the con men, and Scully the dolt, uh, and it was a big hoax. Uh, you know, that's the, the face value of it, and, that, and it's just been regurgitated again and again and again. Um, but it's a different story when you dig deeper into the story. Absolutely. When you, get, when you dig into the facts, like, like Scott has. Well, let's look at some of those facts in the next hour and a half or so. We'll look at some of the facts about Aztec and why you feel it's so compelling. Now, another argument being voiced is, well, Roswell is doing pretty well with the tourist attractions for the crash. So Aztec wanted to get into the act. And that's why people in the Aztec area suddenly remember a crash. (laughs) Well, that's really funny. Anybody would make that statement is very ignorant. They've never been to Aztec. The library... Uh, with Leanne Hathcock as the librarian, did the first symposium, I believe, in 98, is the 50th anniversary. And up until recently, she's had nothing but resistance from the, their own city, uh, specific politicians in the town, whether they're city council or county, whatever, uh, and a lot of residents. They want very little to do with the Aztec crash story. My wife happens to be from that area. My my mother and father-in-law still live there. Of course, my brother and brother-in-law and sister-in-law and nieces live there. That that town has not rallied together like Roswell and jumped up and down and said, "Gee, let's have another, you know, week-long symposium and bring the tourist dollars in." There's a lot of people up there that would wish that whole story would go away. I think that that mythology is akin to the the Phil Class. Uh Flap doodle that that uh, he spewed about Socorro, stating that the that the uh, that the mayor owned the property that the uh, Socorro incident took place on, and that that was set up as a hoax as as a tourist trap. That that's more more of the same. So we're all going to Socorro, New Mexico, to enrich the local coffers. That's exactly right. I'm leaving tomorrow. Yeah. Okay, so we're not going to Aztec, New Mexico, to come to annual conventions, rock and roll bands. Christian fundamentalists, whatever. Right. We're not doing and, that. And, and it's a shame because Aztec is just an absolute drop-dead gorgeous town that, I mean, that, to me, that's a vacation spot in itself, regardless of whether it had uh, anything to do with a UFO crash in 48 or whether people even had an interest in it. It's just a beautiful, beautiful town right in the high desert of uh, New Mexico, right at the base of the, the mountains. Uh, I've also heard, uh, I've had people email me saying, Scott, you haven't done your history. The, the reason the, the Aztec crash happened was in order to draw attention to the town so they could get a railroad. Well, the railroad had already come and left by 48. So that's somebody emailing me that didn't do their research. The Rio Grande Railroad came in to uh, help the cannery, the Mormon cannery that opened in Aztec, to get produce and product up to Durango. 
well, it didn't work as well as they thought, and uh, that line, so to speak, was gone by 48. Matter of fact, only 10 or 15 years ago, it was a narrow-gauge train that they even tear up the tracks. We do address that in the book, by the way. Okay, so it wasn't to bring in the railroad. Okay, right. so let's look at the reality here. Okay, what do we know that shows this is really a case that deserves further investigation? Where's the evidence, as they say? Well, we got eyewitness testimonies of, of people through the years. Not to be blunt, but these weren't the town drunks. These were people that went on to be very successful, whether they stayed in the Four Corners area or moved on to do other things. We have FBI reports, CIA reports, Army CID reports, Air Force OSI reports. Not one report that I've ever seen, and Frank has most of the ones that I've ever had, ever says we've stopped investigating this because it's a hoax. As a matter of fact, I don't know, Gene, the last time we were on your show, they set up a sting operation in downtown Denver at the Edelweiss Bar to intercept pictures that were allegedly taken at the crash. Did we talk about that back in 2007? You know what? Why don't you refresh my memory? We're talking about three years ago, and that's a lifetime. <laughs> okay. Documents that uh, CIA, FBI, and Army CID, which is the counterintelligence division, uh, set up a sting operation to intercept an individual, Laughlin, I believe his name was, right, Frank? I think that was it, correct, yes. I'm, I'm about 50 feet away from the file. That was trying to sell black and white photos of the Aztec UFO crash saucer. Uh, a sting operation was set up. The alleged buyer was a, a reporter from the Baltimore Sun. They pounce on it as it's happening. Uh, Laughlin is whisked away. The alleged reporter is taken away. And at the end of the report, they claim they did not recover pictures, that Laughlin claimed he was drunk and just running his mouth, and that no pictures exist. However, the Air Force OSI report says, we don't believe him, meaning they believed he had photos of it. Now, the interesting thing is here, I spent months with the archivist and reporters at the Baltimore Sun-Times. They never had a reporter by that name ever work for the Baltimore Sun. So we have a non-existent reporter for the Baltimore Sun seeking an allegedly non-existent photograph. Yep. Okay, I'm confused. So are we. The How question is, well, nothing to the Aztec incident. Why would the powers that be look into it at all? All three. Well, the question being, and you can't have it both ways. If, if you know, in regards to the powers that be, whatever military faction it was at the time, either there's something to the Aztec incident or there's not. If there wasn't anything to it, if it was nothing but a hoax, uh, why are they investigating this fellow who claims to have, uh, who alleges to have photographs of the Aztec craft? Uh, it doesn't make sense. Uh, and, of course, I mean, this is one document uh, amongst many. Uh, Thousands. In, yeah, yeah, in regards to the investigation. You can't have it both ways. Either it was a hoax or, or, or at the very least they didn't know, 
and they're investigating it. So obviously, they took this seriously. Right. And the fact that, and Gene, you hit the nail on the head about, you know, I'm confused. Well, I am too. How do you have a reporter that somehow buffaloes his way past Army, CID, CIA, and FBI, and somehow they're convinced he actually does work for the Baltimore Sun-Times? Yet nobody, we only found one employee by that name that ever worked at the paper. It wasn't even a close first name, and, it, and this guy wrote the arts and entertainment, but then didn't start until 57 and left in 69. This all took place, obviously, in 40, uh, 49, 50, 51 era. So the plot actually does thicken. And, of course, I went to the Army CID archives up in Virginia. They conveniently don't have any documents on that case, which I was told by other archives they would have because of the magnitude of the case having all three agencies involved. That's not something that gets purged in spring cleaning every 50 years and say, okay, just throw this case out. Okay, so they're trying to do a sting against somebody who doesn't exist, who is not a newspaper reporter and doesn't have a photograph? No, the, the gentleman allegedly selling the photographs, his last name was Laughlin. The sting operation was catching him selling the pictures to the reporter. Okay, so did he have a photograph? Does anyone know? According to the report, none were recovered. Okay. See what I mean? Sure. Okay. So that's maybe, okay, a red herring. Yeah. Are there any photos of this? I think there are. Okay. Absolutely. I'm convinced. I, I agree. I, I believe there are. Yeah. I, Frank Franks knows the evidence, so we, I think we pretty much both go 100% on that. Yes, there are photos that exist. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. This is the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking to Scott Ramsey. Frank Warren is my special guest co-host as David Biedney takes a well-deserved rescue. I don't know. I could use a rescue. It's a very good idea. I think I'm going to have one in about 12 years, maybe, if they let me. Right now, they won't let me take a rescue. My wife says that all the time, by the way. She says, Gene, you need a rescue. Okay, let us look at what we do know about Aztec. Where did it start? What happened? And then we can focus more on the evidence gathering. Please. Okay. When when did the crash take place and whatnot? Sure. Let's focus on the whole crash as we know it, the story about the crash, and then we can figure out where the evidence led us to that conclusion. Well, you know, along those lines, you could go back to the Scully book. People condemn the Scully book because it goes back to the old uh, notion that Scully was adult and that he was conned by the con men. 
And I, I think, Scott, why don't you start back with some of the things that we know uh, that that are, in fact, fact that Scully wrote about. You, we, you can go back to the Scully book and uh, uh, the majority of it. Uh, yeah, the majority. Uh, you can go back about what he said uh, in regards to Newton, uh, about his education, his background, uh, that he that he hobnobbed with Hollywood stars, that he was a very wealthy oilman. All of these things have been verified. Uh, you can go back uh, in regards to the scientists uh, that he talks to when he refers to Dr. G. We have researched that, and although I don't think Scott wants to name names at the moment, it's going to come out in the book, we now believe we know exactly who those people were. Okay, I understand yeah. that, but let's look at the actual case. Mm -hmm. What do we know about what happened on that day in 1948? Well, it was about 5 o'clock in the morning when Doug Nolan and Bill Ferguson, Bill Ferguson was his boss, uh, we're actually heading down toward Bloomfield, but when Doug got to Bill's house, he was told that they were taking a bypass. They would be going in the complete opposite direction because there was a brush fire out on Hart Canyon Road near one of the company drip tanks. It was a big collection of drip tanks that moved about 15 years ago, actually. Uh, fearing a brush fire near those drip tanks would be a catastrophe, they jumped in the truck to go out. Other oil field workers were dispatched out there. Getting back when you ask where it is, it's about 11.7 miles northeast of the town of Aztec to the actual, uh, what we call the crash site. Uh, they get out there. The other oil field workers uh, tell Nolan and Ferguson that the fire is up on the mesa. It's not near the drip tanks, uh, near as far as it's going to cause any great concern. Uh, however, you need to get up on the mesa and see what's laying up here. So they do the big hike up on top of the mesa. Uh, when they get up there, there's a roughly 100 foot uh, in diameter, as, as Doug told me, lenticular disc is how he described it. Very thin cross-sectional disc. Uh, then uh, a couple by the name of Mr. and Mrs. Knight who had uh, leases out there with the BLM that were running cattle, they arrive at the scene, and pretty soon you have roughly 14 to 16 people up on the crash site, mostly oil field workers. That is that is how the story has been unfolding from our research. Okay, so we have this lenticular craft. What then? Two police officers are at the scene. One addresses himself from Cuba, New Mexico, which we've identified as Manuel Sandoval. Uh, another police officer was local. I think by the time the book comes out, we'll have it pretty well figured out who he is. Cuba only had two police officers, so finding out who was working then was not difficult. Uh, Aztec, you had local constable, local uh, highway patrol, as well as San Juan County Sheriff's Department. So we had a bigger platter of people to pick from of who could have been working on that date and in that time frame. The military, the one police officer says, we need to get everybody out of here. The military has been notified. We know that now from Valentine Archuleta, his interview with Bill Steinman. He, in fact, did call the military that morning, called Kirkland. It took him two phone calls to get to the right person. 
and tell them, hey, you know those big flying saucer things you're talking about? Well, one just bounced off the mesa behind my house heading for Hart Canyon Road. And uh, if you draw a line from where Archuleta's ranch was to the crash site, it's a straight line. And uh, uh, Valentine Archuleta was not known for telling tall stories. He's a very credible person in that area. And also in, in connecting, pardon me for interrupting, Scott. Sure. Uh, also in connecting some of the dots, isn't it true that Silas Newton had oil interests in the Aztec vicinity? Oh, absolutely. And, he was out there with uh, Tom uh, Bullock in that time frame. I just talked to Tom's son. He's trying to find me a doodle bug for the book. Uh, so we can get a good picture of it. Tom uh, Bullock was one of the original wildcatters in that area. At, in 1948, at the time of the crash, was the largest. Uh, Silas would go out and either re-lease -re -re a lease or start from scratch on a lease. Uh, but actually, at the time, uh, Tom Bullock was bigger in the oil field than uh, Silas Newton, although... Everybody knew Silas Newton. So, yeah, he was no stranger to that area. I mean, he was quite well known. Well, okay, so we have this craft. Did we see any entities around it? Uh, yes, from three people that we've interviewed uh, were poking around in the craft. Ken Farley only saw two because he would not go up inside the craft. Doug Nolan would not go inside the craft. Bill Ferguson, however, trying to be the senior, more mature adult. These guys were in their 19s and 20s. Ferguson would have been probably early 30s, mid-30s, trying to see if he could be of any assistance, actually went up in the craft. And that's where the 14 to 16 bodies, and as Scully is adamant that it's 16 in the book, We've heard 14 to 16. Was it 14 inside the craft, two on the ground, or, or two at the control panel? I, I, I've really never spent time on the bodies, whether it's two or 300. It was the fact that you know the guys that we interviewed could see them through the porthole, and they saw it too. Okay, so then we assume that at some point the military shows up. They recover the craft. They recover mm -hmm. the bodies? Yes. Yep, they show up late morning, early afternoon. They came down from what everybody said uh, that we've interviewed. Durango uh, Airfield seems to be where they came in from. And your your research in regards to Durango in that time frame uh, wasn't there? Uh, didn't that uncover some uh, a military operation or training or? Uh... Yeah, that had been a training field in World War II originally. Right. Then it was donated to the city of Durango, and that's now today still their municipal airport. And as the crow flies from uh, Hart Canyon Road, what kind of distance are we talking about? Durango Airport to the crash site, 20 miles. Mm. Yeah, give or take. As the crow flies, almost a straight line. So if they used the Durango Airfield, in other words, uh, just to set the stage, let's say, uh, let's say that there's no argument about Roswell. We're eight months after the fact. Another craft comes down. Um, and then we have a nearby air base that we could use uh, to get equipment, planes, and people in there uh, expeditiously. Yeah, and, and actually, if Durango didn't exist, they had the Farmington Airport, uh, which was also heavily used during World War II, Civil Air Patrol. 
uh, Aztec, still, and all these airports, by the way, still exist. Airport, you know, municipal airport, I don't think they had the runway they do today. Uh, but the military was also, as you you and I both know, Frank, uh, in New Mexico would use highways a lot of the times for an unimproved airstrip. Mm-hmm. And, and Hart Canyon Road back in the day was more commonly used to go back and forth to, say, Colorado and up north. It, and it was the way to go. It was the way. Uh-huh. Yeah. It wasn't the only way to go, but, uh, yeah, I mean, we had that flaky scientist that said Hart Canyon Road didn't exist in 48, <laughs> and we we had to show him that the last stagecoach robbery in the 1890s was at Hart Canyon Road. <laughs> yeah, you had two ways to get up to Colorado back then. One is what we call now Highway 50, or 550, going straight up. It goes uh, into from Aztec to Cedar Hill, from Cedar Hill into Colorado, up into Durango. Or, um, as we learned when Suzanne and I went out there, when we did the uh, reenactment of moving the craft, uh, we found a lot of those roads not only existed, but were the main roads back in that era. Well, which begs the question. Now, we, we see the way how how the powers that be could get there. How do you get, according to Scully, if I'm not mistaken, the craft was 99.9 feet in diameter. Is that correct? That's right. Or how, 314 how, feet in circumference. How how does the, the powers that be with 1948 technology get a craft that size out of Hart Canyon Road? Three quick words. Piece of cake. <laughs> Enlighten us. Uh, again, last year, Suzanne and I, as we were working on the book one night, uh, I think somebody had just been picking on me on the same on the same question. Okay, smarty pants, how do you get a craft that big off the mesa? Suzanne and I decided to uh, contact and hire Bill Metzger uh, to uh, get his input on moving the craft. Bill uh, probably is one of the one, two, or three, depending on who's doing the ratings now. Bill's kind of been retired, but certainly one of the top three people in the world on moving large objects. And uh, what he did for a living, actually worked for my father from 1975 to 1984. And that's what my father did for a living. Uh, Not only moving them, but also expediting them from point A to point B. Bridge pieces, turbines, Generators, transformers, huge structures, and and Bill turned out to be a good choice not only from his the knowledge standpoint, but uh, Bill is very skeptical on on, on the subject matter of UFOs. So I I thought that was actually to our benefit. I didn't want somebody who was pro UFO that was going to figure out how to move this using 1948 technology. So we went out in August and uh, spent two days at the crash site. About two months before, we had sent Bill all the information we could on Aztec, Frank Scully's book, a little bit of Steinman's book, and he did his own research on Aztec as well. Uh, with the help of my brother-in-law, Russ, Russ Ninos, who knows the Largo Canyon, Hart Canyon area like the back of his hand because that's what he does for a living. He works in the oil fields. And pulling up old maps, we found out, unlike what Carl Flock had said for 10 years, 
that the roads were all the same leading in and out of Aztec. Uh, that was not true at all. The roads that we know today were the, the beginning of that business plan started in 1950. And what I mean by that, Gene, is as you come out of uh, Albuquerque, on what we call Highway 550 today, back 15 years ago, back to 62 years ago, was what we referred to as Highway 44. And as it came up to the town of Lybrook, it went due north and then northwest into Largo Canyon, where it crossed over what is now 64 back up in a northerly direction and into Hurt Canyon Road. There was no Highway 550 coming into Bloomfield. What caused the construction of that was the discovery of Chaco Canyon and, the, and also the boom of the oil fields back in 1950. A, the oil company said, we need to limit the traffic out here because it's dangerous bringing all these big oil trucks and big booms out. Secondly, the state of New Mexico said, we need to keep to cut a road to get people closer to Chaco Canyon because this is now a destination. This is a, a great place for tourism. And it was a safer route to bring people up into Bloomfield, Aztec, and subsequently the Farmington area. So now we had a new set of roads we had to deal with. Uh, so we had to reenact it on those old roads, which are virtually intact from 1948. They're, they're hard, unimproved roads, which is what they were back then. So anyway, to make a very long six- or seven-day story short, at the end of the day, moving the craft using 1948 technology was a piece of cake. In Bill Metzger's report, it says something to the effect, on a scale of 1 to 10, it would have been a 3, and they would not have even needed his expertise. Well, we don't have much time for part one, but can you tell me briefly, what did he do that made it a piece of cake? Uh, the fact that, A, there was flatbed trucks big enough to handle that called the M24 Dragon Wagon. After World War II, they were conveniently stored in the desert at Holloman Air Force Base. Um, and didn't, second, didn't we, Scott, let me interrupt, didn't we uh, also uh, find that uh, there was a, a dam going on at the time where... Uh, like equipment was in in Mancos, yeah. yeah. In I'm Mancos, saying, is how far? Seventeen, eighteen miles. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there was a huge dam project, and actually, it wouldn't be that far, Frank, because it was on the east side of Mancos, is how they say it up there, Mancos. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was also uh, Army Corps of Engineering heavy cranes, bulldozers, everything within. Even though it doesn't sound far, it's still a half a day drive using those roads back then. Uh, so that that was all quite simple. The other thing of the size of the craft, taking into account how Scully said it came apart, and overhanging that on a mock-up and using uh, pinch sticks for clearance, we were able to drive the whole route down to the base of Lybrook and then up the mountain Assuming parts of it went to Los Alamos, there was no problem. Actually, actually, once we got to Lybrook, we didn't care about anything else because the clearances are so far, uh, so wide. Did we find a couple clear of sailing? Yeah, clear sailing after Lybrook. I'll tell you well, what. Yeah, we'll continue with clear sailing in just a moment. We're talking 
to Scott Ramsey, and we're focusing on the Aztec UFO crash and how the wreckage may have been recovered. We'll have more on the other side of the PowerCast. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hey neighbors, would you like to see the PowerCast live long and prosper? Well, if you know of anyone who wants to advertise their products or services on the PowerCast, have them contact us directly. Tell them to write to sales at theparacast.com. That's sales at theparacast.com. And we'll also accept your donations by PayPal. Send your PayPal donation to the same address, sales at theparacast.com. That's sales at theparacast.com. And thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. We're joined this week by our special guest host, Frank Warren. And with Frank, we have Scott Ramsey, who has been studying for many years the Aztec UFO encounter. One of the questions that had been asked was how could they recover a 99-foot diameter craft and Scott's telling us how this is a piece of cake. No clearance problems at all. Please continue with the description of how you recreated this recovery. Okay. There we had a couple of pinch zones, and a pinch zone is where we weren't gonna we would clear it, but we would be under twenty four inches. And we have to take into certain factors erosion, uh part of Hart Canyon Road, and Bill Metzger was kind enough to write the chapter of moving the craft for our book. I do the introduction, I do the end. Uh, but Bill, from a skeptical standpoint, writes it saying, what, regardless of what it was, yeah, it would, could have been brought out of there and not, not a problem. Uh, but other than a few pinch areas that we had concern with, we still cleared it. What, one what? wrench, uh, it, let me just throw this in, uh, since this, since this uh, interview was actually precipitated by Kevin Randall's uh, earlier interview, he mentioned uh, in the previous uh, show that the crash site uh, was in dispute. Could you elaborate on that? Now, you and I talked about this privately, and this was news to me. And, of course, he's not here to de to defend that position. But why don't we enlighten the listeners? Uh, yeah, I, I, that, when you told me that, I, that's the first time I've ever heard that. Uh, I think if you pulled people in the Aztec area that could care less about whether they had a flying saucer incident, they would all agree that up there on top of the Mesa uh, near Arkansas Loop or Arkansas Bend is where everybody's talking about. It, I've never heard it to be in dispute other than one rancher that you and I talked about, Frank, that told me that I'm off probably 100 feet as to where we put the plaque on the mesa. So, so regardless of what someone might think happened there, the location is not in dispute to, with any, with all, with your 20 plus years of research, that's the location. That is correct. Okay, now, are we depending on the sparsely populated nature of this 
town back in 1948 for the fact that they're dragging pieces of a 99-foot diameter spaceship across the desert, and very few people, if any, saw this happen, or did they? Well, actually, um, that's an excellent question. If we had a flatbed out there today and we removed a DC-9 or MD-80 fuselage off that Mesa, if it weren't for running into a few oil field workers, probably my brother-in-law would be one we'd run into. We could probably pull it off today. Let's also be clear that we haven't. We're not talking about. We don't know if the, if the craft had been in space. <laughs> That's true. Uh, <laughs> keep, keep in mind that road does not take you into the town of Aztec or Bloomfield. That road runs off the crash site due east, then south, and then southeast into Lybrook. I think the only thing in Lybrook and Suzanne sitting here was a general store and a whorehouse, right? Maybe the aliens came here in that location because they wanted to get some action before going back to Zeta Reticuli, you think? That's it. That's it. Yeah, because Lybrook back then had a, a general store or a mercantile store and rumored maybe a house of ill repute. Today, it's even it's on only on the map because there's a big pumping station they may do some refinery there, but it's a pretty good-sized facility. By the way, the old mercantile shed is still there. So long and short of it is that they could do this in a way that wouldn't draw attention to what they were doing. Yep. They can pretty much get away with it. So in as much as that's true, how do we explore what happened and when it happened about the recovery of this craft and where it might have been taken? Well, let me interject uh, right there, Gene. The, uh, we, we've talked about uh, documentive evidence to the tune of over 2,500 documents that Scott has culled from various military and uh, government archives. We've talked about sound and sober uh, direct eyewitnesses, some pillars of the community. Um, but isn't there physical evidence as well, Scott? Well, yeah, and we haven't really spent the time and the money to analyze that. I, I but, don't mean in the sense of a smoking gun as an ashtray from the flying side. No, I was re- yeah, I was referring to the trees knocked down at the crash site. Well, the trees, and what about the concrete sample? That yeah, I was going to get yeah, the concrete slab that yeah, makes absolutely no sense whatsoever to be up on top of the mesa. As a matter of fact, uh, the concrete dragon, slab back off. What? You've never heard of the infamous concrete slab? Explain, please. Okay. There is... Uh, it's so hard to describe something in the desert when you're talking the terrain out there. But basically, a road had to be cut in in order to get a flatbed or a crane in a position to retrieve this object. Okay, That land out there on top of the mesa, because of erosion and because of the terrain, is very silty. So after a road was cut through there, Part of the side of the road where they kind of really scraped into bedrock is relatively stable. The other side of the road, even to this day, is very silty, especially when it rains. Uh, Bill Steinman found it first, and Randy Barnes rediscovered it. There is about a one-meter-square concrete slab that measures about nine or ten inches thick that's full of five-eighths and uh, three-quarter-inch rebar. It's mixed from local grout with Portland cement. So whoever poured it did it in a very big hurry. They brought in their Portland cement, 
used the local grout and pebbles in the area, set up a form, and poured this very thick slab. We had the slab analyzed back in, I don't know, 2000, 2001. It doesn't post-date the Aztec crash, meaning the concrete didn't show that it was from the 60s or 70s. I'm not going to get into a lot of that now. We cover that in the book. But All right, but remember, was, people are not going to see this book for a while, so maybe cover the most important points. Okay, the most important point is the slab was poured to handle an incredible amount of weight, and in reading uh, some operating features on the Dragon Wagon, the thing had three winches, one in the front, two in the rear. It had a uh, application, for lack of a better word, where uh, you could mount a crane on it, I don't think they did mount a crane on the back. I think a crane was brought in and put next to the dragon wagon, and that crane would have needed some extra footing or, or support for the the, uh, the legs. And uh, that slab was, like I say, uncovered, and we did core samples on it, and I think that's an important piece of physical evidence. This would have only been built there to handle some sort of recovery operation involving some kind of large object. Well, no, you I, can't I, say that. No, no. Yeah. We cannot come up with an intelligent reason why it's there. We've had the skeptics tell us, oh, it's a well cap. So we decided to disprove that. We came out with a big hole saw, a big concrete cutter, and we drilled a hole through it. Had it been a well cap, we would have blown ourselves to smithereens. Didn't Carl Flock uh, suggest that? Uh, I wasn't going to throw Carl into Yeah, that was Carl. He, <laughs> he said it was a well cap, and... We've heard it was a compressor mount pad, and I dare anybody to find a compressor mount pad of that shape and diameter. Plus, you wouldn't have a well cap on top of a mesa that's solid bedrock, and you wouldn't have a compressor pad on top of a mesa on bedrock. All right, so you really can prove it wasn't there for another purpose, but you can infer by its presence it could have been used to help recover this craft. It's extremely suspicious. I think that's the most logical thing to say. Okay. Any indication or any evidence where they took the craft and in exchange where they take those bodies? Well, before you get to that, wasn't there was also other evidence? Wasn't there uh, ration cans found on site? Ration cans 18 inches down. Plus, uh, Suzanne's brought up a good point. She's sitting here with me. What made us even look for the concrete slab, keep in mind, I was researching Aztec before I knew Bill Steinman's book was out. What made us look for the concrete slab was interviewing an ex-military Air Force guy from 48 that said all he knew is the recovery got delayed because of uh, problems with setting the crane. And he said they had to pour concrete footers in order to stabilize the crane. And, you know, that, that all of a sudden here we have a old concrete slab that Randy Barnes found by taking a piece of rebar and going down in the silt, clink, 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 thud, and found it. So, so in the order of things, you have, a, uh, you have a witness that claims that concrete footings needed to be poured for the uh, extraction of the craft, and, and you did not know about the, the concrete footing at the time. No, correct? but... It, it turned out that uh, Steinman had written about it. Let's go back for a second. He now, was so not a let's witness. Look here. Let's just remind our listeners who haven't been following this for 20 years, what book are we talking about? Uh, Bill Steinman's uh, UFO crash at Aztec uh, that he and Wendell Stevens wrote. It uh, came out in 1985 or 86. 
Okay, so we're referring to that book in this wrap-up. Go ahead, please. Okay. But the, the gentleman that told us about the slab, Frank, had never been to the crash site. He was working it from the Air Force Intelligence side at the Walker Airfield down in Roswell. No, oh, I understand that. But I think it's important to note that uh, prior to your knowledge of the slab, somebody told you about it. They oh, tied it to the extraction of the craft. Then in the aftermath, uh, even not knowing about Stein, Stein does in fact write, write about uh, going out to the crash site and finding remnants of the slab himself. I believe, but even but you weren't aware of that at the time. Then independently, uh, Randy Barnes uh, uh, finds the slab. Then you actually find what this gentleman was talking about uh, that there there was in fact a slab. That's then correct. you do laboratory testing, and it fits the timeline. There's nothing in regards to the laboratory testing that suggests it was done later. In, in other words, all these pieces could sort of fit together. That is and, correct. Right? Yeah. Okay. Well, I, and I realize that, that a lot of this is speculation, uh, mm-hmm. but it's interesting how these all, these little pieces of the puzzle start to gel together. That's well, right. We'll have more pieces of the puzzle. Is there a secret UFO agenda? Do strange creatures from the darkest corners of the mind roam the earth? Is there evidence for mind control, time travel, or devious government conspiracies? Find out the inside scoop on the latest conspiracies, paranormal activity, and Freudian phenomena when you subscribe to Tim Beckley's Conspiracy Journal. It's jam-packed with stories, special book and DVD promotions, and the best news, it's absolutely free, sent right to your mailbox. Plus, a bonus free email newsletter sent out every Friday. Simply send an email with your name and address to Mr. UFO at WebTV.net. That's Mr. UFO at WebTV.net. Find out what they don't want you to know. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Our special guest host is Frank Warren. We're talking to Scott Ramsey, who's busy with his wife working on a book to bring us up to date about the Aztec UFO crash, which he says is a genuine event. Now, what we're always interested in here is the witnesses. What can the witnesses demonstrate to us, other than inferring by the presence of a concrete slab, etc., etc.? What do the witnesses confirm about this? On the, on the crash? Yes, sir. Okay. okay, okay, sorry, I'm sidetracked here. Uh, well, the stories between all of them have always been uh, very consistent. Uh, the time of day, the date, the time of morning. Like I say, I go back to people that may not fully have an interest in the Aztec crash. They all agree there was a brush fire out there that morning. The brush fire had nothing to do with a flying saucer. It had everything to do with a lightning strike. Uh, remnants of the old brush fire are still there today. So that tells you the magnitude of the brush fire. It would intrigue me, Gene, was over the years the consistency in the story. The location hasn't changed. Everything has been very consistent. Now, one, you know, there was one wrench early on, which I think uh, is important and interesting. And this this may go along the lines of what Kevin said in the uh, earlier uh, Paracast show, 
of a couple of weeks ago. Now, he, he indicated, and I'm ad-libbing here, I didn't get a chance to listen to the show before we went on the air, uh, he had mentioned that either witnesses were misquoted uh, and or they later changed their tune. And we there was one prominent witness uh, who said that the Aztec incident could not have taken place because he owned the property uh, in that vicinity and would have known about that. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, his name was, uh, was that? Was Hank that, was Knowlton. The, Hank Knowlton. Yeah, he's and, a very good, good, very good friend of my brother-in-law and uh, Suzanne's family. He said, no way could that have happened. Our family would have known about it. We own the property. And what happened? Well, that was disturbing because my brother-in-law called me on that, Russ, and said, hey, you better get with Hank Knowlton. He thinks that uh, you got your dates wrong. I said, gee, Russ, they've been consistent, you know, from everybody we talked to. He said, well, the problem is, and, and Hank is another pillar of the community. Hank passed away, by the way. But uh, Hank, the whole Knowlton family in Aztec are very well-respected people. So when Hank said, hey, you got your dates wrong, that was that was a potential huge wrench. And well, again, what what do Suzanne and I do? We pack our bags and we go out to Aztec, <laughs> and we uh, had a company pull the records. And Hank, in fact, did own that land. Well, and, but he and, didn't... For, and for the record, you live in North Carolina. Yeah, right. Yes. More wonderful, Mooresville, North Carolina. Yes, Aztec isn't in your backyard, in other words. It's eighteen hundred and seventy-three miles, or something close to that, if you drive it. <laughs> It's just a day's drive. Um, so Suzanne and I went out there, and we hired a title company to do the research so there'd be no room for human error on an amateur's part of doing a title search. We can all go down to the county and pull the records, but we decided to pay the money and have a title company do it. Was it San Juan Title? I think it, yeah, San Juan Title Company. And uh, Hank did own the land, but he didn't buy it till the 50s. So I called Hank. Now, I talked to Hank before he went out, and he reiterated the story that, uh, or his feeling, that I really think you're, you're off because uh, I owned the land and I was out there every day. And when we gently and very nicely presented the, the deed, and he had bought the land from Harold Dunning. And by the way, that, that the crash site today, besides Bureau of Land Management, Dunning, and Knowlton's are still... The, the land, the, the way the land's drawn out, still intact. And uh, I brought up the fact, and and Hank said, "Well, let me think about it." And I don't know if I called him back or he called me back. And he had made a phone call, and he said, "No, you're absolutely right. Forty-eight. We didn't even own that land." So that that was a potential wrench that uh, kind of went sailing by. The monkey wrench disappears. Yep. Okay. We, I'm sure if we sat here and thought, there's been more than just that one. <laughs> Well, indeed. I guess we all want to understand every part of the evidence and see what's going on. Now, in terms of physical traces or anything that anybody could get a handle on, was it all pretty much gone by the time anyone got to investigate the thing? Well, yeah, because actually the the story of the Aztec crash is that the craft was virtually intact. Uh, None of the witnesses we talked to could see any noticeable damage. Other than the proverbial hole in the porthole, and, and I this is I think this is important. Be, and, and here here we get this cross pollination between Aztec and Roswell. Of course, Roswell the the notion is is that uh, possibly the craft exploded uh, you know off the ground a little bit in, in altitude, for example, and spread debris of, of the and we hear about the infamous debris field. 
and people don't think about that and they just assume, well, okay, you know, where, where's the lug nut? From this thing, and I, I think that's important to note that yes, this uh, uh, in regards to the Aztec uh, incident, that the craft was intact. Uh, so you're not there aren't pieces to be found, uh, a la Roswell. No, the the only physical evidence uh, that I feel is important, although we mentioned the sea ration cans. Uh, I don't. As a matter of fact, they, they may get mentioned in the book, but may not, because we found that the Alamo Army Surplus Store sold them through the 70s. They had old World War II sea ration cans with the beanie weenies in them and the sardines, and they would sell them to either oil field workers or hunters because Hart Canyon Road is a wonderful place to hunt mule deer. Mm-hmm. So that could be ruled out circumstantial by a group of hunters that said, uh, Hey, those are ours from 1975. We used to hunt out there, and we'd bury them down 18 inches in the ground. Uh, the broken tree limbs that, thank goodness, some were saved. Two years ago, we had Ted Phillips come out, and he spoke at the Aztec Symposium. And Ted and I talked the night before, and we went out for kind of a private tour, and Ted looked at me and said, what the hell do you mean no evidence? This place is full of evidence. And, and True, Ted Phillips' eyes. For the benefit of our listeners, explain who Ted Phillips is. Uh, Ted Phillips is a wonderful researcher like a Kevin Randall that works on physical trace cases. And he's been on the Paracast before. Yeah, he's a and he's a fantastic for... guy. Um, and Ted looked at me and said, you're not looking at this site through my eyes. There's all kind of physical evidence. Look at these broken trees, these broken tree limbs, the burnt trees, the, you know. But all, and that's all wonderful, and you know, I think Frank has a little bit of an idea how much time and money we spent on this research, and the days of sending things out for two and three and four and five thousand dollar analysis have come to an end. Maybe that's the second book, volume two. But uh, for right now, I think we have enough of a case to present to the public to to, to really. And Kevin and I talked about this. Kevin Randall and I talked about this in an email. There's enough there for an excellent researcher like Kevin to look at and maybe look at the case through different eyes. And he, and by the way, for our listeners' benefits, and, and not to pick on Kevin, uh, he opted not to come on uh, this particular episode just because he, he's not knowledgeable about your specific research, and that was going to be the focus uh, of this episode. Sure. So he has agreed to come back on in the future after he gets a signed copy of your book. <laughs> so you're obligated, Scott. You have to send him a signed copy. Oh, Kevin and I already had our, our stream emails. I already, I already told him that, uh, you know, I'd be honored in so many ways to get Kevin a book. Well, and we mentioned uh, at the start of the show, or I did anyway, there is a Roswell connection. Uh, can we talk about that, Scott, the, uh, without naming names, uh, without, not to spoil the book or anything? But Are we referring to specific people? I have one in mind in particular in, in regards to the retrieval. Right. Well, he was based out of Walker, mm-hmm. which Walker... In 48, went from Roswell Army Airfield to Walker Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I interviewed that gentleman, uh, oh, God, back, what, 15 years ago? And at least 12. He He's the one we were referring to earlier that said that he knew the, the recovery operation was delayed for a few days or weeks because of the cutting of the road uh, uh, made it possible to... Uh, 
for bad silty conditions and they needed to pour the footers. And he was uh, Air Force Intelligence. He didn't come knocking on our door. We found him going through old files. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, okay, so uh, I'm talking about one specific figure. You know what? At this point, I don't think that people are not going to buy the book if you mention the name. You know, Why don't you tell us who this is? I don't even know if I'm going to mention him in the book. Okay. But he's somebody be- who was involved in the Roswell crash recovery and also involved in the Aztec case. He, he was stationed at Roswell. So mm-hmm. we, okay. we don't know that he was, was he, we don't know if he was connected to the uh, Roswell crash itself, per se. Or That's it. correct. Was okay. anyone connected with the Roswell crash also somehow connected with this incident? I, none that I, I, could, I could throw down a resume and say yes. However, the witnesses that we were fortunate enough to interview keeping in mind again they were 19 20 21 years of age young men said that the the military guys on this operation were very mature people their guests going back 60 years in their 30s mid 30s these weren't other young guys their age and wore no insignias looked as though they were army not air force the another interesting tidbit, and I personally believe, having been in heavily involved uh, to this day with Roswell research, in addition to Aztec research, in playing devil's advocate, let's say that there's no argument for either case. Let's say that something, in fact, uh, unique did either crash and or land in both cases. It stands to reason Roswell being the the base that it was and having the people there that it was, and of course we're talking about the only nuclear-armed Air Force base in the world at that time. So uh, having the clientele there that it did, it just seems to reason that they would utilize some of the same people in similar retrievals that were only eight months apart. Also, if we go back to Roswell, uh, in terms of you want to talk about discrepancies, there was always discrepancies about the the crash site of the location. I've always found that interesting. So if, if you look at this eight months apart, is it possible that people that were involved uh, in the Aztec uh, retrieval from Roswell, is that where we're getting this, uh, you know, this cross-pollination, as Gene would call it, or the confusion between crash sites? It could be. It could be that some of the military guys worked on both. Or, you know, there, there, uh, there could have been two in Roswell, one on the, out on the plains and one near Corona. Mm-hmm. And then eight months later, and, and God knows how many in between, and then eight months later, Aztec. And I don't believe these were falling out of the sky. I believe they were being shot out of the sky. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, so the Roswell ship is shot out of the sky, which says they're vulnerable to our weaponry, even though they're very highly advanced. We assume that if they're traveling from whatever distance. And then we have the Aztec ship, which crash-landed, but not with a lot of physical damage. Again, shot down? But that also takes us to other evidence that you uncovered, which could quite possibly be, well, it's been speculated for years that radar uh, may be uh, in conflict with the propulsion systems of UFOs. Mm-hmm. And you uncovered three uh, secret radar bases uh, during your research. Isn't that correct? Yeah, yes, we did. Uh, two of the radar bases weren't operational in '48. But certainly the ones, uh, the one over at uh, Los Alamos was, 
and they would have that was restricted airspace back then. You and Gene and I weren't going to hop in a Cessna 172 and go flying through that area without, at minimum, being shot at. I so mean, the, the gist of it is, in that in that vicinity, in that part of the country, with all the testing that was going on, for example, with the V-2 rocket uh, post-World War II, that, that airspace was monitored heavily. Heavily monitored, yeah. Okay, but the thing that bothers me about that is, let's look at the fact that we have this alien race, mm-hmm. highly advanced. To them, radar is super uber primitive. You would think that they would do some sort of preliminary exploration to see what there is about our weaponry, about our capability, or about our technology that would cause them harm. And certainly being immune to radar beams would be numero uno amongst this, unless this is all being produced by the lowest bidder because the government of the Zeta Reticulans, of course, was bribed to accept their bid. Before you answer that question. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730. Or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? We have Scott Ramsey. He's working on a book with his wife on the Aztec crash. Special co-host is Frank Warren. And so I pose a satirical question, but, you know, one that obviously is going to occur to the skeptics. How could advanced alien aircraft be susceptible to radar beams? Let me, I'll throw the rebuttal into that, just playing devil's advocate. Uh, We can only make that argument from a human perspective. There's no data on the table uh, that is indicative of, of how aliens, if in fact we're talking about aliens, off the planet. In, in terms of how they operate and think, you know, the, we can throw out the argument. Does, does uh, I mean, human technology is supposed to, we think, advance in a linear fashion. Uh, some would make the argument if that's the case, then we should have 200 mile an hour MPG cars because we were driving, you know, 30 and 40 mile an hour cars back in the 20s and 30s. But but for some reason, agreed, that technology did not move in a linear fashion. Who is to say? Uh, that aliens are like us in that manner. I mean, are, are aliens, if, if in fact they are aliens from Zeta Reticuli, uh, are they societal? Uh, are, are they carbon-based? Do they have the name, same needs, do, emotions? Or, or, in fact, are they, uh, 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 if in fact they are from Zeta Reticuli or 
like place. Uh, perhaps these are cloned uh, beings that uh, are that come here. I mean, the speculation is rampant. There's just not enough data on the table, uh, you know, to to suggest that we can only see it from our human lens, not the other side. Until more data, uh, speaking strictly scientifically, until more data is on the table. That's right. I mean, they may come here if, in fact, they are aliens from another world. They might come here to eat our dirt, but we don't know. Mm -hmm. Rich in trace minerals. Well, certainly they were kicking a lot of dirt when they crashed. Yeah. Well, you know, and to use the word crash with Aztec is a bad habit of mine. It was more of a controlled landing. And going back to Valentine Archuleta's interview with Steinman, he talks about it being a huge object. And by the by the way, Gene, this, these objects had been seen since January of '48, so it wasn't like this this one in March uh, 25th of 1948 at five o'clock in the morning. Was the first one? I mean, you mean in that specific vicinity? In that area? Oh, sure, well, Los well, Alamos. Yeah, well, you could take it even further. That's the other thing. Everybody always puts their blinders on, and they limit this to the singular incidents of Aztec and or Roswell. We have to remember what was going on in the summer of '47. This was a global phenomenon. In '48, it was a huge phenomena from Albuquerque north to Los Alamos. The Los Alamos. Uh, Atomic Energy Commission records show that they were being, I forget the exact word they, they used, barraged with UFOs. Uh, Andy Andrews, Highway Patrol from Farmington, uh, he'd meet uh, Manuel Sandoval. Instead of talking about speeders that night, they'd talk about how many UFO sightings they had that night. The green orbs have now become huge objects with portholes and what they uh, described as searchlights going through the canyons in the desert. So by the time March rolls around, two specific people that are out late at night, uh, oil pipeline inspectors all the way to uh, the, log, uh, the timber guys up in uh, Regina, New Mexico, large, huge UFOs are becoming very common. Okay, now is there any possibility any of these large UFOs, and we have to assume maybe some of the descriptions were a little bit off, to come to this conclusion, they were really secret weapons. That was my first inclination. Actually, it was Aztec. I'm going to go back now to the late 80s. My first recollection after hearing the thin cross-section, it was a flying wing. It met the criteria to be a flying wing if you looked at the thing head-on. The only problem is no flying wings. They've all been accounted for, even at the end when they were being scrapped. None of them crashed in that area. As far as technology, then we would have to make the assumption that for 62 years, we've been wasting our time on F-16s, uh, 18s, 20, uh, the F-22 Raptor, and the whole the whole deal. If we had this technology, would we keep spending billions of dollars on advanced aircrafts like the ones like the Raptor right now? Okay, but if we have alien spacecraft, we have the craft from Roswell, maybe it wasn't in such good shape, we have this huge ship from Aztec that we recovered in 1947, 1948, we learned nothing from it? I don't know. Good question. Let, let's throw in, the, again, let me reiterate, we, we don't know, and I don't think either one of us are alleging that those craft were, in fact, in space. Um, we don't know their their origin. For me personally, when I my definition of extraterrestrial is anything not us. But also to to throw a little Friedman in, as as Stan often recounts, uh, there over, since the beginning of what we deem modern day ufology, large crafts 
have been cited, and Stan always used the aircraft carrier uh, analogy. In, in other words, there, you know, uh, the, the F-16s that take off an aircraft could be uh, akin to some of these smaller crafts. They're, in other words, if, if in fact a mothership, uh, let's say, is coming from somewhere else, these smaller craft may not have ever been in space other than being inside a so-called mother mothership. So, so we don't know that these independent craft that have been found or, or that have crashed have, in fact, seen space at all. Okay, but they still have to have advanced technology, you would think. Well, I mean, they wouldn't be like yeah. a propeller-driven craft of 1947, you know. Certainly beyond our capabilities, obviously, based on the characteristics, the common characteristics that have been reported since day one. Right-angle turns, uh, you know, zero to 3,000 miles an hour in a blink of an eye, uh, and on and on. Okay, let me, at the risk of repeating myself, which people say I do when I get older, anyway... <laughs> Or inhaling too many substances when I was a kid. I don't want to go into that. So you speak of it as evidently a controlled landing, but no capability of taking off again. No creatures alive to defend themselves when we came out to the site to do something about it. That's correct. Okay. So Got whatever it. happened, they might have landed the craft, but they all died? Or the craft landed itself for me to... Say anything beyond that would be pure speculation. I don't know. I can only go on what uh, people, one in this case, uh, that I've been able to find, and he's deceased now, and that's uh, Valentine Archuleta. In his interview with Bill Steinman, the craft was coming down almost as a floating leaf. It actually made contact with the mesa behind his ranch and headed straight in a north northeasterly direction right toward uh, what we call the crash site today. It had knocked some trees down, so it wasn't a perfect controlled landing. But whatever speed and angle it hit, uh, it didn't do enough damage to uh, to harm the craft. It's safe to say that the common consensus is that it was that the craft was in some sort of distress. Mm -hmm. Yes, and the only physical damage that has been consistent for 62 years is the broken porthole. Okay, and that's the important point here, that of all the evidence you've looked into, all the eyewitness reports, the second-hand reports, the first-hand, whatever, consistency, where's the total consistency? Just what you're telling me, or is there stuff that's a little bit more vague that's maybe worth further attention? Well, there is. Now, let me interject well, yeah. there. The, you have interviewed witnesses independent of each other that have actually uh, described other witnesses. You have found the corresponding witness, isn't that correct? That is correct. Ken Farley being the best example. Ken wasn't even from the area. He was traveling from Durango to San, San Diego. He was in Durango seeing an aunt and had a best friend who he was traveling with uh, was staying in Cedar Hill, seeing a relative, friend, whatever. When Ken and his friend, when Ken came to pick up his friend, his friend said, boy, I don't know what the hell is going on out on that road, but boy, there's been all kind of excitement. Just being two 19-year-old kids, they said, well, we got days to get to San Diego. Let's go see what it is and see if we can help or get in the way. So they weren't even local guys. And they, when, when I interviewed when Randy and I interviewed Ken, uh, he said, we stood on the western side of that mesa because we didn't like what was going on. People climbing on the thing, people climbing up in the thing. Then we got to Doug, who was local there. He said, well, I knew everybody at the crash site except for two or maybe three guys that were standing out on the western edge. Pretty exact, pretty exact hit right there. Yeah, yeah, corresponding corroboration. Right. Uh, yeah. Now, the only, Gene, the only reason we almost 
had problems with Ken Farley's story during the interview was uh, Ken said to us, well, then the second police officer showed up. And I said to Ken, two police officers in 1948 showed up on Hart Canyon Road? And he said, yeah. I said, Ken, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but if I was out there today and if I could get a cell connection and I called 911, I'd be lucky to get one. No disrespect to the local law enforcement, by the way. And well, it turned out why there were two. One followed the craft, Manuel Sandoval, basically all night from Cuba, and the local one, that was that was tracked by highway patrol. That the the, the calls were going into the switchboard at the, at the San Juan County. Danny Sullivan, who had been sheriff in San Juan County, a relative of his, was working the switchboard that night. So, it, you know, a lot of collaborating things. Uh, when people say they've been to Aztec and they can't find witnesses, it's not an easy thing to find because, again, you're talking, talking about a town of six to 8,000 people. Uh, there's a lot of people up there who just don't want to talk about it. Hey, neighbors. Would you like to see the PowerCast live long and prosper? Well, if you know of anyone who wants to advertise their products or services on the PowerCast, have them contact us directly. Tell them to write to sales at theparacast.com. That's sales at theparacast.com. And we'll also accept your donations by PayPal. Send your PayPal donation to the same address, sales at theparacast.com. That's sales at theparacast.com. And thanks for listening. Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We have Scott Ramsey, and Frank Warren is my special guest host this week on the PowerCast. All right, Scott, we have maybe 18 minutes left. If we're going to make up two bullet point charts for Mac users, it'll be Keynote for Windows users PowerPoint. Okay, looking at Roswell here, looking at Aztec here, what, if any, are the advantages to the evidence in the Roswell case compared to Aztec or vice versa? I'm, I'm not that knowledgeable, and, and Roswell Jane didn't really make any comparisons. Yeah, my, my whole focal point in life, that's why I always say I'm not a ufologist. But we do research on one case, and that's it. Uh, I know the peripherals surrounding Roswell, but I don't know if that can intelligently answer your question. I think, well, I, I, I'll jump into that a little bit. I, part of that, and again, and I'm guilty of this myself, we all have a tendency to narrow our focus on a particular case at the time. Uh, when it's Roswell, it's Roswell. We forget what was going on. It's important to always go back and describe the flavor of the times. 
remember in the summer of 1947 where it began, what, what we deem modern-day ufology, this wasn't just a New Mexico event. You know, I've got newspaper articles uh, at the tail end of July that, quote, uh, they say flying saucers now seen in 38 states. Then And then it expands from there. I have reports uh, globally in the summer of 47. We have reports of, uh, I'm going to use the term squadron, flying in formation all over the country, beginning in Washington state. We've got them reported down in uh, Southern California in Bakersfield. We have a report of eight or nine, and by the way, another either crash and or landing in Idaho. This was going on. Uh, there, there were other reports. If you go back to Mari Island, which most people, uh, modern-day ufologists, consider a hoax, we have uh, an account of a, a group of flying saucers where one was in distress there, and which, by the way, I'm up to eight or nine witnesses uh, in, in regards to Mari Island that were, it was below the craft, opposed to the conventional theme story of just being Dahl and Chrisman. So... If we combine all of that together, we have craft all over the United States, if we want to just stick to this country, and oftentimes it seemed that there were one or more in distress. So then if you, if you take all of that into context, it doesn't seem too outrageous that perhaps one landed, crash landed, uh, at a soft landing, whatever you like to call it, and then that there was retrievals from that point. We always tend to focus, we narrow the focus when we talk about one of these incidents, and I think it's important to expand that and look at everything that was going on at the time. Mm -hmm. Now, we know that the Air Force gave out several explanations as to what happened at Roswell. What did they say, if anything, about Aztec? It's kind of interesting. They have never made an official comment on Aztec. Neither has the FBI or the Public. CIA. Publicly. Publicly, yeah. They have publicly Weaver's report on Roswell, and the only reason I know that, I got both copies sitting here. They have tried to come out and change their story on Roswell. They have never made a statement on Aztec. I couldn't find a document down at Maxwell Air Force Base, which for your listeners is the archives of the Air Force for historical reports that, and I said that earlier in the show, I was looking for a document that says, oh, well, we give up, we're writing this off as a hoax. Never do you hear that. Any freedom of information requests about this? Hundreds. And what have they yielded? Excuses? Nothing? Um, Silas Newton's file from the FBI. And it, interestingly enough, uh, you, you did the, the FOIA for the case mentioned earlier about the photographs at the uh, Melwin Hotel in in, uh, in Denver, mm -hmm. and seemed to get uh, it felt like the runaround. Oh, absolutely, I got the runaround. I don't like doing Freedom of Information Act requests because they usually get you very little. I do prefer to go to the archives myself and my wife. And she and I sit down and go through the card files and start asking for declassification of specific records. doesn't mean you're going to walk out with thousands of pages in one visit, but uh, over time you can build a pretty good case. Okay, we're getting to the tail end of this episode. Okay. You've got a book that you're working on, Scott. What's the name of the book and where are you in preparing it? Okay, the title of the book as it stands now is The Aztec Incident. It's written by Scott and Suzanne Ramsey. It's 20-plus years of research on the Aztec uh, flying saucer incident. 
got half the book floating around between Frank Thayer in New Mexico, who's doing the editing. Stan Friedman has about half the book right now, reading it uh, for checking it to make sure I have some dates right. Um, and basic overall format, correct, I guess, would be more accurate. Um, several uh, chapters under construction and a lot of work to do, scanning in maps and photos. Well, like I said earlier, we're not going to put our uh, time frame. Uh, we, we have enough pressure with life going on right now, but we are working on it on a steady routine and uh, slowing down a little bit or a lot on the research end of it and concentrating more on getting the, the creative writing part done. Okay, well, now what information do you feel that you can still get on this case before this book actually sees print? I, I don't know at this point, Gene, if there's anything beyond what we have sitting in the in the pile. Uh, there's a lot of things I would like to do. I don't have the time and the money, and it would just delay getting what we get out at this point. I think we have enough information as it stands, I mean, I could make, you know, I'm 52 years old. I could go the next 20, 30 years researching this case if time and money would allow. But, uh, it, well, important to note, too, that this isn't going to be the be-all and end-all. Uh, and, and I always kid with Scott that, you know, this is <laughs> this is the first edition. Uh, <laughs> what are we going to do? I mean, there's plenty plenty for the sequel, in other words. I'm, I'm done with what we call ufology after this book. <laughs> but, <laughs> Frank already knows what I'm going to do after this book is that, done. That's been the threat. We'll see. That's the threat. That's right. <laughs> But, okay, uh, now obviously one of the things we were doing so far in this episode was basically to look at the criticisms, the doubters, and trying to address all of their concerns. What are we missing still? I don't know. I didn't have time to listen to the Paracast episode with uh, with Kevin. I know he brought up some uh, points that uh, he didn't agree with uh, Aztec, and I know he brought up the Silas Newton, Leo Gebauer, Khan uh, faction you guys from swapping emails that uh, he had a problem with the location changing and that the witnesses have gone back and forth. I've, Suzanne, I've, to the best of my knowledge, we've never had a witness go back and forth or change their story. I mean, that just hasn't happened. I don't think anybody in town argues the crash site location other than one rancher telling me I'm off 100 feet on where I have the plaque. On a mesa that size, 100 feet is pretty insignificant. Um, what else did, did, did Kevin have an issue with? Well, it's not just Kevin Randall. I'm thinking about anybody who has voiced skepticism of this case through the oh. years. I mean, we know about the situation with regard to Frank Scully, with regard to his two sources, Newton and Dr. G. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and... Uh, oh, and Dr. One thing that's come up over the years is that Dr. G was Gepauer. And I, I've had family members of Frank Scully tell me, absolutely not. We knew who Leo Gebauer was, or Gebauer, however you want to say it. And the person Dad met with at the house was certainly not Leo. Leo was Silas' sidekick. So I, that was one of the early things that was troubling me, is were the skeptics right? Was Dr. the famous Dr. G just Leo Gebauer? And I can tell you from what we've researched beyond a shadow of a doubt, no. So who was and, he? Oh, you got to save that for the book. No. 
Yes. I can't do that. We've got to have an answer, man. That's the well, least of it. Who was he? Well, it go it go it still goes back to what Scully said in his rebuttal. It was a composite. It was a composite of a group of people, and and we believe that uh, we know who those people are. It, 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 it I think it goes. It, I can't argue enough the fact the the the, uh, the components of Scully's book, the factual data that everybody says was not factual because they presume it all came from Newton. Uh, if you if you go to those uh, the the factual items, um, we have proved the majority of that to be true. Yeah, Frank Frank Scully's book was, in fact, very factual. Yes, yes. Very factual. How long has it been, Gene, since you read the book? Well, <laughs> I don't want to admit how many years ago. But the one thing I've seen in reading his rebuttals to the criticisms, Scully came across as a pretty straight-ahead person. Yeah. You know, he didn't come across as the gossip columnist. Right. And and he never changed his position till the day he up until the day he Something died. Never, and, and he would never divulge till the day he died who Doctor G's were. Yeah, by name and by name, and, not even not even the family gene. He said, "I I cannot do that." And and, and the after stands behind it. What's that? Day. And the family stands behind everything. Absolutely, they do. Yeah. Uh, as Frank Warren and I were digging up. Uh, potentials of who fit Dr. G's character and resume. Uh, and that wasn't easy work, was it, Frank? No, it wasn't. That, that was painstaking. That, that took us to a lot of great depths. Well, you have to assume it's a doctor and that the letter G is part of the name, or does that mean anything? Uh, no, it was eight or nine scientists, as Scully says. And if you go back, and if you have the time, and if you need a copy, I'll, I'll shoot you one. And the book we're talking about for your audience is the book written in 1950 by Frank Scully called uh, Behind the Flying Saucers, put out by Henry Holt and Company. I you think that's in the public domain. You can actually download the thing free, right? Yes. Yes, yes you can. And uh, just last year, Tim Beckley reprinted the book. So you can buy a brand-new copy on Amazon.com. Uh, uh, Sean Castell and Tim Beckley uh, reintroduced the book last year. Saying so give Tim and Sean a couple of dollars if you buy their copy. What's that now? Yeah, yes. <laughs> if, if, yes, if you choose to do that. Okay, yes. so Tim right now is listening and he's making sure that we mention the fact that he, of course, does advertise on the show. And if you thing. contact him, you'll get more information. Or just check on Amazon. Yeah. For the book Behind yeah. the Flying Saucers by Frank Scully. You're saying it's eight or nine scientists. These are scientists right. who worked in that area. Uh, they they uh, worked in the area that Frank said they did work in in the book. They worked on very top secret projects. They had a billion dollars uh, of budget money at their disposal. Uh, they brought down. Uh, their, one of their inventions sank so many submarines in one day, which we proved actually did happen. And this group was the, uh, Frank, I'll let you, to, the OSRD superseded by. It, well, it was a component uh, of the OSRD uh, back in the day. Um, and it, it actually connects Vannevar Bush uh, 
right into it. Certainly, if this group was aware of what was going on with Aztec, uh, it's a no-brainer that Vannevar Bush would have been in, involved. Uh, and I think Steinman alleges that as yes. well, his book. Yes, he does. Uh, and Bill Steinman's book, to give Bill credit, who has completely left the uh, the arena of UFO research, and, but his book, uh, UFO Crash in Aztec, uh, which is also available, and, and the Aztec Public Library, last I knew, had new copies of the book, 505-334-7658, I believe is their phone number, or just Azteclibrary.com. Mm-hmm. His book is extremely accurate, too, and DeSimo was given a hard time and poo-pooed that, oh, well, you know, he didn't name names, he had, he listed initials. Well, I know who those initials are, and they're people that appear as names in our book. And his book was extremely well done. And some of those initials uh, are is earth-shattering. I I feel. Yeah. Uh, knowing some of the names, it's quite interesting. And listen, By listen. Way, before we go on, because we only have a couple of minutes left, give me one name, please. Our listeners are begging for a name. Drop me one surprising name that will just entice them to want to buy your book the day it comes out. How, how about the founders of the company we know now today as Texas Instruments? Okay, that's pretty good. Go back. So basically DLP, that projection TV technology, alien technology. I'm kidding. <laughs> well, Nothing would surprise me. The, the parent, TI, and actually its parent companies back in the day, during the Second World War, they manufactured, they had the contract to manufacture the magnetic anomaly detector, which is what we used in the Second World War uh, to detect submarines. Yeah, we, uh, we actually used it up until a few years ago in the P3 Orion subchaser. Those gentlemen who became billionaires in their prime were ironically doodlebuggers. In fact, one of them had the on their epitaph on their tombstone. It is, that is uh, mentioned, the, the doodlebuggers actually mentioned on his tombstone. And uh, the irony being, you know, uh, Silas Newton, by association Gebauer, got slammed for that and were prosecuted for that while their colleagues in the oil business became billionaires. I, I, I find that uh, ironic. <laughs> There's great irony in that. The great irony is we're out of time. Scott Ramsey, before we let you go, tell our listeners one more time the name of the book and when you expect it to see print. Aztec incident, don't have a, a firm date, but definitely in 2010. Uh, if anybody would like to learn more about the Aztec incident, uh, there is a DVD available. You can go to Aztec1948.com and order a copy. Now, by the way, if you click on Scott Ramsey's name on the Powercast.com, you go right to the ordering page for that DVD. And my direct email address and phone number for anybody that would ever want to contact me uh, with questions, concerns, or information, you can contact Suzanne and I by clicking on that email address and or calling the phone number. It's on the site. Yes, Both sir. Scott and Suzanne have a column at the UFO Chronicles. Let me get that shameless plug in there. And uh, they have written extensively about the uh, Aztec uh, crash in their column there. And uh, it's very interesting reading for anybody that uh, would like to take a look. 
Okay, before we let you go, Frank Warren, our special guest host this week on the Paracast, tell our listeners where they can learn more about the UFO Chronicle. Well, you just Google UFO Chronicle, and uh, you'll, you'll, uh, it'll take you right there. Uh, we have uh, daily, as information hits the Internet in real time, UFO reports from around the world are published. Uh, we have a, a group of various writers uh, and, which, and that we add to uh, uh, monthly almost at this point. In fact, the latest uh, writer to join our group, our columnist, is Dr. David Clark. Uh, who has a heavy hand in uh, getting the uh, the Ministry of Defense in the, in the UK to publish their X files, their UFO reports, and he's been in the news recently as the uh, uh, as the fifth batch of uh, UFO files from the UK. Previously classified files have been released. Okay, and- Frank, thank you so much, Frank Warren, for being our special guest host, Scott Ramsey. We look forward to reading that book, and when it's out, we'll have you and Kevin Randall back on to discuss everything. Thank you both for joining us this week on the Paracast. Thanks, Gene. Appreciate it. Thank you, Gene. And thanks to David Biedney for allowing me to keep his seat warm. (laughs) The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.